This is Professor Allen, and welcome to The Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select mostly at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 27th episode of The Quarter Bin, I'm looking at the book that I said in the 25th episode I'd be looking at in the 26th episode. But free comic book day got in the way. That book is Green Arrow number 60 from DC Comics, cover dated early May 1992. Green Arrow number 60 had a cover price of $1.50, meaning I acquired this comic at a very nice 83% markdown. The story, Predator Part 2, was written by Mike Grell, with art by Rick Hoberg and John Nyberg. The cover, which is Grell's only art of the issue, shows Green Arrow near the edge of a pier, preparing to fire an arrow at an oncoming red van, with Black Canary hanging on for dear life to the luggage rack on the roof of the van. This is a scene from the story, which I always appreciate in a cover. Although the van is a dark camo green in the story, so making it red here is just artistic license to improve the overall composition of the cover, I suppose. For the longest time, I was not sure what to make of the cover. I have no doubt that if this was drawn even just a few years later, any time from the late 1990s on, Black Canary's butt would be even more prominent than it is, and somehow her boobs would also be a major part of the cover as well, somehow. But still, there is somewhat of a you know leg and butt shot here, but it didn't seem to me to be exploitative or overly cheesecake. And as much of a modern, sensitive male as I try to be, I know that sometimes I miss the boat. So I ran this cover by my in-house expert on all things sociological, politically correct, feminist, and comic booky, my co-host of the Shortbox Showcase, and also my daughter, Emily. She and I both agreed that any drawing of Black Canary is by nature cheesecakey because of the heels and the fishnets and the bustier-style one-piece bathing suit costume. But... There's nothing accentuated in this pose. There's nothing unnatural in her proportions and contortions. The body pose, even the hair flying straight back, all seem right. All seem appropriate given the action in the scene. So this one passes inspection. If this were, say, Liefeld, she'd have no spine or feet. Her body parts would be even more prominent than they are. Or if Jim Boob's balance thank you, Michael Bailey, had drawn it well, we know what body parts would be front and center. I do post the cover for every issue that I uh, cover on the podcast as part of the episode blog post at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. You may also be able to view it directly depending on the iDevice you're using to listen to this. And of course, you can see it at Mike's Amazing World. I'm curious what you thought of the cover in terms of the standard comic book cheesecakiness exploitation factor relativelygeeky at gmail.com and now on to the issue itself which starts with a nice montage page we have Green Arrow firing an arrow at a woman 
who is prone holding some type of rifle. There is an inset of the crosshairs of the scope, dead center on a man's forehead. We see the arrow slam the rifle and her shot bang off the hood of the car near where the targeted man was standing. That's a lot of images and a lot of action. And that's just the first page. Next is a two-page splash of Ollie diving at the female sniper, trying to smother her before she can get off another shot. No, you bastard! She screams at him. You've ruined everything! Except your life, Ollie answers. There's still time to save that, unless you'd like to stick around and talk to those cops. The target walks away, and the two men who were with him take off after the gunfire. They are the police detectives in question, and we learn that they have just delivered the target, Charles Houck, to his house. He has just been freed from prison on a child rape and sexual predator charge. He is a legitimately bad dude. Looking at this, it's possible that the cops were just staking out the house, either for him or for this attempt on his life. This is a part two of a story, so there are probably some subtleties that I'm missing. In the confusion after the shooting, Halk takes off from his house behind the wheel of a van, and the police are out of position to follow him. Better call Lieutenant Cameron and tell him Halk is loose on the streets. Yeah, the other one agrees. Then I'm going to call my wife and have her lock up the kids. Green Arrow has taken the sniper, the mother of one of Halk's prior victims, back to Dinah's floral shop for safety. She confesses that she has been planning this night for seven years, what she'd do to Halk when he was released. We learn that her son, Kevin Walker, has been a psychological mess since the crime, and that Kevin's issues were too much for his father to handle, and the couple divorced. Mrs. Walker asks why Green Arrow stopped her, and he explains that justice and law are not always the same thing. The law says if you kill Halk, you have to pay. I've paid enough already. Kevin has spent most of his life living in terror because of what Charles Norman Halk did to him. And tonight, he's free to do it again to some other family. He's hunting for another innocent life to destroy. He's not the only hunter on the streets tonight, Green Arrow assures her. And we see a hot blonde in fishnets tailing Halk's van. Black Canary trails Halk to a bar. While he buys drugs in the bathroom, Dinah spreads the word about exactly who he is and what specific crime he perpetrated. Maybe it's urban legend that child abusers and child killers don't fare well in prison. Maybe that's a cliche. Be that as it may, when Halk leaves the bathroom, a gang of heavies beat the crap out of him. Halk stumbles out of the bar bleeding, but makes it to his van and heads off into the night. The detectives from earlier in the issue are trying to figure out how to reacquire Halk, even though they understand they have no legal right to do so. He hasn't broken any law since he's been released, one of the officers says. So what do we do? The lieutenant eyes his detectives. We do something. The next morning, Black Canary continues to stake out Halk, keeping her eye on his van. She has informed Ollie of her location. You'd better hurry if you want a piece of this, she tells him. Wouldn't miss it. 
Hauk tries to grab a girl at a school bus stop, but Black Canary intervenes, telling the girl to run home. Black Canary catches up to the van and then jumps off her motorcycle onto the top of the van in the scene from the cover. Ollie fires an arrow into the windshield, sending the vehicle out of control. Dinah kicks her way through the window, just as the van crashes its way to a halt on the edge of the pier. All right, bastard. Let's see how you do against someone who can fight back. By the time Lieutenant Cameron, Ollie, and Mrs. Walker arrive at the van, Black Canary exits out the back of the van, and we see Hauk hung by the handcuffs he's installed in the van, having retrofitted it into a mobile torture chamber. Attempted kidnapping, the lieutenant says. Not much of a charge, but it'll keep him off the streets for a while. And then what? Mrs. Walker wants to know. He'll just get out and do it all again. I'm sure we'll think of something, the lieutenant says, echoing his comments from earlier in the issue. At which point, the new weight distribution of the van, with Black Canary having exited out the back, causes it to slowly lean forward and crash through the end of the pier, and it falls into the bay. Remember that Hauk is handcuffed inside. What do you think we ought to do, Lieutenant? Ollie asks Cameron. I'm sure we'll think of something. Hi, my name is Mike, and I like comic books. Okay. So what do you think about Ben Affleck being Batman? No, I said I like comic books. That's a movie, and I couldn't care less. Well, it's a comic book movie. Really? Did you go see the magazine movie? Or do you watch the television book? I like comic books. You know, those things make for paper, especially the old ones. Whoa, those things. Are they CGC 9.8? No, you're missing the point. I like to actually read comic books, especially the old ones. I like them so much I even build a website to tell other people about them. Does it have any information about uh, Avengers 2? No, it has info about actual comic books. Lots of covers, creator credits, character appearance lists, story synopsis notes, and so much more. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Where can I find it? It's at mikesamazingworld.com. Do I have to read anything? Reading makes my brain hurt. You can just look at the pictures if you want. Or you can listen to my podcast, where I talk about the history of DC Comics, especially the old ones. So I can listen to a comic book podcast? It's a podcast about comic books. You can find it at twotruefreaks.com. What's it called? Mike's Amazing World of DC History. History? You mean like before Twitter? Yes, the world actually did exist long before Twitter. My show is for comic book fans, especially the old ones. So check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the website, and listen to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast, for information and fun related to actual comic books, especially the old ones. If you wake up with the blues, trying to fill your day with news, there's one thing you must remember, no agenda in the morning. For a healthy, balanced news diet, try noagendashow.com. Yeah, on no agenda. Squirrel. In the morning.
And we're back. As I've said before, I am a big fan of Mike Grell, as both writer and artist. This is the third time he's appeared as a writer on The Quarter Bin. Back in Episodes 3 and 8, we covered a two-part John Sable story. And similar to those books, the only art we get from him here, sadly, is on the cover. Now, in the cases of those John Sables I just mentioned, we barely missed out as Grell stopped drawing the title literally with those issues. But in this run of Green Arrow, he never actually penciled any interiors. This title launched in 1988, with DC Comics adding it to their mature audience comic line. But technically, the reboot started the year before with a three-issue prestige format series, The Longbow Hunters. That series was indeed both written and illustrated by Grell. I've never seen any of those in the quarter bins, so I do feel like I can spoil them just a little bit. It starts with a routine storyline of Ollie going up against a group of drug runners. But since it was the early 90s, and this was the mature line, and it was time to get dark and gritty, Black Canary was captured and brutally tortured. In response, Oliver murders his girlfriend's attackers. I think that part is important, as the stark ending to this issue might seem out of place for a hero or out of character, but knowing the genesis of this story might give it some context. That miniseries would also introduce the enigmatic female Japanese archer Shadow. If you're watching the Arrow TV show, you've been introduced to a version of that character. And just for your information, there may be more Shadow here on the Quarterbin podcast. Nothing totally set in stone, but I'm just saying. So in this title, in keeping with the gritty and real-world feel that these mature books tried to have, Grell moved Ollie and Dinah from the make-believe Star City to real-world Seattle. The geographical shift had the effect of isolating this book from the rest of the mainstream DCU of the time. Okay, enough backstory. To me, picking this book up at random, boy was that ending a surprise. Just a few episodes back, we looked at a Batman story from the same year as this story, and Batman's attitude was pretty similar about letting thugs just beat each other up, maybe kill a few, that just took work off of his plate. But just letting the villain die, wow, that is cold. Look, we know this guy is a first-rate sleazoid, and that his prison experience has obviously not reformed him. But still just letting him drown. On the last page, the penultimate panel, between Ali asking what they're going to do and the lieutenant saying he'll think of something, we actually get a shot of Hulk under the water, breath held, hands cuffed, eyes bugging out. That is cold-hearted. It's actually more than letting him die. They pretty much set it up to go down that way. I don't even know if the Batman of this era would have just left Hulk to this fate. And it is fair to always compare Green Arrow to Batman, because Green Arrow has been a Batman knockoff ever since the Silver Age. The rich playboy, the kid sidekick, the Arrow car. There was an Arrow cave in the Silver Age, for crying out loud. So to see, in short sequence, Green Arrow of 1992, 
adopting Batman's Cavalier 1992 attitude, it just seemed again that Ali is still living in Batman's shadow. The lack of differentiation between the characters was kind of a bummer. Because if you have Green Arrow and Batman acting the same, Green Arrow will always come off the second place, second best, second rate, maybe. I don't think that's fair to the character, but that's how DC wants Green Arrow portrayed. And given that broad editorial mandate, I like Grell's general take on the character. And I think this issue, in particular, is really good. It is certainly affecting. It's certainly thought-provoking. This is not your Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams version of Green Arrow, either. I try not to read a ton of political or social commentary into my comics, but the history of Green Arrow is such that it's pretty appropriate. This just doesn't seem like the Green Arrow that Emily's getting ready to read about, uh, getting ready to podcast about on Uncovering the Bronze Age. This is a much darker character and a much darker world. Again, he is on the same page as Black Canary and the police in how to, quote, take care, unquote, of the Hulk problem. I mentioned that this is the second part of a two-issue arc, but I never felt lost. This could just as easily have been a one-off that starts in media res. There was never a sense of only getting half a story. We learn quickly who Hulk is and what Hulk is, a slime ball just out of prison on a child rape charge, and we see that the police officers are not happy to see him free. After Hulk escapes the sniper shot, one comments to the other, somebody wants to scrag a slime ball like Hulk? What the hell are we doing trying to stop that? Our jobs? Partner answers. I was afraid you'd say that. That's good dialogue, and it's effective, as in just a few brief lines, we've learned a lot about these two policemen. And that pattern holds true for everyone we meet here. It's obvious how modern this book feels in terms of the grittiness and intensity and the dark subject matter. But this book also seemed modern in its pacing. It's not decompressed in the sense that not much happened or that the story is spread too thinly over too many issues. So even though this moved really quickly and covered a very short period of time, from sometime just before sundown one day to just after school bus pickup time the next morning, a lot of stuff happens. The dialogue is pretty sparse, and there are many silent panels, some silent pages as a matter of fact, and I whip through it pretty quickly. But I don't feel ripped off. Sure, the 25 cent price helps, but even at the original cover price of a buck fifty, it seemed a good deal. I, I never felt that this was decompressed storytelling in the modern sense. This was just a fast-moving, fast-paced, really well-done story. I think that modern comic book writers can sometimes mistake dark for substance or dark for quality, as if just because it's dark, just because it's intense, it's good. But this is good not because it's dark. It's good first as a story, and then also it's dark and gritty. The verdict on Green Arrow number 60. Very interesting story, very good storytelling, and certainly a memorable ending. A definite quarter bin bargain.
that wraps up my coverage of Green Arrow 60, bringing episode 27 of the Quarterman podcast to a close. In episode 28, we'll be looking at rune number four from Malibu Comics, cover date of January 1996. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.